Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Tuesday, November 15th, 2022. It's been 3,184 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 265 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we maintain our assessment that significant war crimes and atrocities will be discovered in Kherson during the coming week. Second, we maintain that the slowdown in combat operations on multiple axes is a mirage, with intense fighting creating little progress. Both belligerents have significant military assets they can reallocate to new axes. Third, we maintain that neither belligerent will institute a winter pause. Fourth, we maintain that President Putin's inner circle is actively targeting Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu for dismissal and replacement due to continued military failures in Ukraine. Fifth, we maintain that Russian President Vladimir Putin is facing renewed unrest inside and outside the Kremlin. If there continue to be military failures, there is a remote chance Russia could face a regime change. Sixth, we maintain that the Russian Navy's presence in the Black Sea has become irrelevant, with missile carriers reluctant to patrol beyond the immediate coast of Sevastopol. Seventh, we maintain that terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure will continue across Ukraine, despite the significantly reduced number of attacks over the last week. Eighth, We maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine is combat-ineffective and can only mount effective defensive operations. Ninth, we maintain it is likely that the Russian Ministry of Defense will concentrate its available firepower on a small area but will likely return to a combat-destroyed state after making marginal gains that they won't be able to leverage into a strategic victory. Further, we assess that this will likely occur on the Donetsk axis. Tenth, we maintain that the private military company Wagner Group is spread too thin due to its expanding role in the Donetsk Oblast and the revelation of crippling battlefield losses. Eleventh, we maintain that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, 
forcing Russian troops to remain in a defensive posture. And finally, we maintain that Russian forces in Belarus remain a credible threat for an invasion of western Ukraine, but we now assess the possibility has pushed further out to the next 55 to 85 days. Before we get started, we had some technical difficulties that resulted in us having to re-record the entire podcast. Needless to say, we found ourselves a little behind schedule. As always, we thank you for your understanding and your patience. But let's get some regional updates, starting, of course, with Kherson and Zaporizhia. There continued to be rampant rumors of Ukrainian forces liberating Kholapristan, Oleshki, and or Novokakhovka on the east bank of the Dnipro River. There has been no evidence to support the claims that any of these towns have been liberated and are under Ukrainian control. There also continue to be rumors that Ukrainian forces occupied the Kinburn Spit west of the Black Sea Biosphere Reserve, where Russian troops repeatedly retreated to a four-kilometer defensive line stretching across the neck of the peninsula. Videos showed that Ukrainian DRG squads made a small landing on the spit, performed maneuvers, and departed. Ukrainian Special Operation Forces, or SOF, and DRG units have been operating on the spit almost continuously since the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th. Some Ukrainian mill bloggers and social media accounts cited the Russian shelling of Ochakiv as proof that Ukraine was conducting larger-scale operations in the Dniprovska Gulf. Operational Command South, or OCS, has documented the shelling of Ochakiv since August, as we've reported in multiple situation reports. The Russian Ministry of Defense and mill bloggers have reported Ukrainian counterbattery on the spit, which we have also covered in multiple situation reports. We maintain that although DRG and SOF units have operated on the peninsula periodically since February 24th, there is no indication or proof that Ukrainian forces have started a permanent occupation in the Mykolaiv or Kherson sections of the spit. Thank you for coming to our TED Talk. The Russian mill blogger community appears to be moving through the stages of grief over the loss of Kherson, leaving denial and moving on to anger. Russian mill blogger Rybar had a meltdown over Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to Kherson, writing, quote, We do not want to mobilize reserves properly and demonstrate the art of warfare. We don't want to win. We do not want to do everything for the sake of the result, not the process. We do not want to emerge from the world of sweet dreams that the war is somewhere far away. Similar performances by the president of Ukraine in the Russian Kherson is the most real media slap in the face. End quote. A quick editor's note here. The emphasis on Russian Kherson is in the original statement. That is 100% Rybar. Snark about the stages of grief aside, there are renewed cracks in accepting the Russian Ministry of Defense's decision to retreat from Kherson, which was a strategically correct decision that, in our assessment anyway, Russia waited too long to do in the first place. The photographic and video evidence of a limited number of Russian POWs captured and a growing inventory of military equipment and ammunition captured have further damaged the already battered trust between Russian mill bloggers and the Kremlin. The electrical grid on the west bank of the Dnipro for Kherson and large areas of Mykolaiv was completely destroyed by fleeing Russian troops. 
including critical transformer farms and electrical distribution nodes. Due to the lack of basic infrastructure, as well as gutted hospitals, mines, unexploded ordnance, and booby traps, Ukrainian officials are appealing to former residents not to return just yet. Passenger rail service was re-established between Kyiv and Mykolaiv, complicating the situation. The first train was, understandably, filled with people wanting to return to their homes. Assessment here? Given the scope of our platforms and how half of our audience is beyond North America, we join the Ukrainian government in appealing to civilians that live in or near the liberated areas of Mykolaiv and Kherson. It is not yet safe to return. The area is heavily mined and buildings and homes will need to be cleared one by one, just as they were in Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel, and hundreds of other cities and towns full of booby traps after the Russians retreated. The lack of basic services, including water, electricity, internet, and cellular communications outside of the cities, could create a dangerous situation during extreme cold or leave someone with no way to request help if they or others become sick or injured. Please follow the instructions of local officials and return when you are told it is safe to do so. You can rebuild your life. You cannot, however, regrow a foot or resurrect a dead loved one. Operational Command South, or OCS, reported that 50 fire missions were carried out, mostly on Russian positions on the east bank of the Dnipro River. There were multiple reports of Ukrainian rocket attacks by HIMARS on Russian troop concentrations and equipment in Kalanchuk, Skadovsk, Olishki, Hornostaivka, Nipriani, Chaplinka, and Holopristan. Russian troops used four Lancet Kamikaze drones to target Ukrainian military equipment in Dudchene. Russia has been using Lancet drones for counterbattery with increasing effectiveness. Russian forces shelled the airport at Chornlobaivka on November 13th, with Ukraine claiming that abandoned Russian equipment was targeted. Russian troops initially reinforced their positions in Hornostaivka, Lyubimivka, and Petropavlivka on the east bank of the Dnipro and Novooleksivka near the Kherson-Crimea administrative border. Then, Russian troops reportedly shelled the occupied town of Hornostaivka because the residents refused to evacuate. Natalia Khumenyuk of OCS reported that Russian troops had abandoned the first and second defensive lines they built on the east bank of the Dnipro River and were retreating 15 to 20 kilometers back while under intense artillery, rocket, and GMLRS attack. Captain of the First Order Khumenyuk claimed the retreat was occurring due to ongoing artillery strikes. Russian troops and collaborators were evacuated from Zelizny port to Skadovsk after local residents once again refused to evacuate. Exiled Melitopol mayor Ivan Fedorov reported that the 24th school in the city, which had been converted into a Russian barracks, was destroyed in an explosion, likely caused by a HIMARS strike. Russian collaborator Dima Truchin was reportedly in intensive care after being injured in an explosion. It was not clear if he was injured in the blast at the school-turned-Russian barracks or in a separate partisan attack. Russian and Ukrainian military leaders both claimed that their opponents were moving reinforcements to the line of conflict in the Zaporizhia oblast. Civilians were rounded up in Melitopol and pressed into slave labor to build defensive positions for Chechen forces. Russian troops are tearing up tarmac and dismantling the stonework of canals to build the structures. 
The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, reported the situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is stable. They indirectly countered claims by the Russian Ministry of Defense that the plant was shelled last week, stating, quote, the area has been relatively quiet, end quote. Power continues to be supplied to the plant by a single 750-kilovolt line, and reactors 5 and 6 are in a hot shutdown state. Energoatom reported they intended to bring reactor 6 to a low-power state to produce more steam for heat at the plant and Energodar, but not to produce electricity. Rosatom officials in Moscow refused, citing the unstable power connections, which Russian attacks on the electrical grid have caused. Let's just marinate in that for a second. IAEA Director General Rafael Grossi criticized the situation and continued Russian interference with plant operations as a critical safety violation. He also criticized ongoing work by a Russian third-party contractor to modify the dry-spent fuel storage without prior authorization by Ukrainian plant operators. IAEA inspectors have been allowed into the work area and verified the security seals on the spent fuel containers had not been broken. It is noteworthy that the Kremlin discontinued all claims about Ukraine making a dirty bomb after the IAEA completed inspections at three locations in early November and reported the claims were unsubstantiated. There were clear skies, a bit of wind, and scattered artillery fire from the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border to Juliapola to Orihiv. Some assessment here? Ukrainian forces wasted no time moving up M142, M270, and Mars-2 guided multiple launch rocket systems, or GMLRS, closer to the Dnipro River and redirecting fire on Russian troop, ammunition, and equipment concentrations in Kherson and Zaporizhia. The Russian response has been to move logistics, command, and control assets further southeast. The Russian military has a centralized command structure and very much relies on hub-and-spoke logistics that become increasingly ineffective the further away they move from the railroad supply nodes. Four days after the liberation of Kherson, the same ruthless efficiency of targeting Russian lines of communication, called locks, those are supply lines, across the Dnipro, is continuing at the same intensity. Meanwhile, Russian forces continue to have no meaningful answer to NATO-provided HIMARS. Now to the Donbass region, starting with southwest Donetsk. There was renewed fighting south of Velika Novosilka, with Ukrainian forces successfully defending Vremivka. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that the 155th Naval Infantry of the Russian Federation recaptured Pavlivka, which Ukraine had liberated on August 3rd. Both sources report that the town is unoccupied and obliterated after almost three weeks of continuous fighting. Russian forces remain within the first two blocks of the town and south of the river. They can't advance because no defensible positions are left, and Ukraine is maintaining significant artillery fire. A video from the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, People's Militia, showed significant Ukrainian losses and at least one soldier being taken as a prisoner of war. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported that the 1st Army Corps of the DNR continued to play the greatest hits of 2014, with ongoing fighting east of Novomikhailivka and no change in the situation. 
The situation in Marinka is reported to be difficult after four months of almost continuous shelling. Russian forces flattened the city by applying General Zhukov's doctrine of intense artillery barrages, followed by light infantry charges. The process is repeated until advancing poorly equipped light infantry is no longer attacked. DNR light infantry was met by Ukrainian artillery and troops, suffered heavy losses, and returned to the city's eastern part. Intense artillery fire then followed the retreat. Lather, rinse, repeat. Russian troops also attempted to flank Marinka by attacking Krasnohorivka, but did not advance into the town. The DNR People's Militia released an almost four-minute video showing their forces had captured Opitne, and positional fighting for control of Pervomaiske continued. Russian forces attempted to advance on Novokalinove and flank the Ukrainian stronghold of Krasnohorivka to the north. The DNR First Army Corps attempted the same strategy at the peak of their prior advance between August 20th and 23rd. Some assessment here? Based on the current state of the Russian advance, Ukrainian forces' combat capabilities will be tested on the northern and southern flanks of Avdiivka. That said, we maintain that the Russian Ministry of Defense lacks the quality of leadership and force strength to capitalize on the ongoing marginal gains. The DNR People's Militia Public Relations Channel claimed their forces destroyed two self-propelled howitzers, eight tanks, and 20 units of, quote, armored and automotive vehicles, because, trust me, bro, those losses would result in a second combined arms battalion being completely destroyed in 48 hours, crippling a Ukrainian brigade. A video showed three Ukrainian M113 armored personnel carriers, or APCs, being destroyed outside of Bakhmut, which would be included in the DNR report. Some assessment here. This is still a far cry from the 56 vehicles claimed to be destroyed between November 13th and 14th. Given the history of the Russian Ministry of Defense and how the DNR People's Militia has no issue with showing grisly videos of dead Ukrainian troops, the lack of video evidence raises doubts about the combat claims. Also, 60 Ukrainian troops were reportedly killed. The destruction of eight tanks, two SPGs, and 20 armored vehicles in the last 24 hours would have produced a bare minimum of 94 casualties. Finally, the Russian MOD reported that 18, quote, armored and automotive vehicles were destroyed theater-wide on November 14th. And that's with our analyst team being as generous as possible with the definition of a vehicle. Pixar didn't happen, bro. Pixar didn't happen. In northeast Donetsk, fighting for control of Bilohorivka, the one in Donetsk, led by private military company or PMC Wagner Group, continued. The settlement remains a no-man's land. While fighting for Solidar in Bakhmut remains heavy, the operational tempo has slowed significantly. Some assessment here? PMC Wagner units are now spread across a 60-kilometer front, from Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, to Mykolaivka-Druha, south of Bakhmut. The area they are defending, or attacking, has more than doubled since the beginning of October. Combined with an estimated loss of 80 to 100 mercenaries a day per Yevgeny Prigozhin, it is not at all surprising that the offensive operations to capture Bakhmut and Solidar have gotten a little bogged down. 
Fighting continued southeast of Solidar in Bakhmutska and east of Bakhmut. The Russian mill bloggers we follow did not mention any combat operations on the Axis. The State Border Service of Ukraine claimed that Russian drones dropped K-51 grenades on Ukrainian positions, releasing CS gas. Although CS, also known as tear gas, is frequently used by civilian police forces worldwide, it is considered a chemical weapon and is prohibited from being used on the battlefield. Ukrainian troops used Seaburn protocols, that's chemical, biological, radiological, and nuclear, and held their positions. One grenade failed to detonate, enabling the confirmation that CS gas was used. In Luhansk, Russian and Ukrainian sources reported mutual fighting in Novoselivske. Russian mercenaries with War Gonzo reported the situation was, quote, difficult in Plashanka, with Ukrainian forces advancing from Makivka and trying to seize control of the P-66 highway ground line of communication, called a G-lock that's a supply line that, by definition, is on the ground. The GSAFU claimed that Russian forces had ordered the evacuation of all civilians from Kremina, Rubizhne, and Severodonetsk. While ordering the evacuation, they were inventorying available housing to quarter Russian mobics. The same forced relocation as part of the genocide of Ukrainian people occurred in Kherson, under the same justification and using the same martial law declaration to force relocation to Russia, the pre-2014 borders Russia. Sergei Haidai, Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that fighting was moving closer to Kremina and Rubizhne, with local residents reporting they could hear the constant sound of fighting. His report aligns with our observation that while the line of conflict is moving back and forth, Ukrainian forces continue to make steady easterly progress towards Svatova, Kremina, and Lusychansk. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. Moving on to the Cherniev, Kharkiv, and Sumy region, where up to eight S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack landed in the Seredina Buda Hromada in the Sumy Oblast. A Russian helicopter also flew a combat sortie and dropped bombs in the same area, and two homes and a business were badly damaged. Also in the Sumy Oblast, Russian forces targeted an object of critical civilian infrastructure, injuring several people. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, there was one Russian submarine capable of firing four caliber cruise missiles on patrol. Pictures have emerged suggesting that the radar array of the missile frigate Admiral Essen, which has remained in port since the October 29th unmanned surface vessel or USF attack on Sevastopol, is damaged. Our contact had reported that one of the missile frigates had its radar array damaged by shrapnel. Under normal circumstances, a replacement would be easily accessible. Due to sanctions, however, the Russian Ministry of Defense may not be able to source new parts, partially blinding the ship. No one has been able to produce pictures of the starboard side of the missile frigate Admiral Makarov, which also remains in port. Grad rockets fired by MLRS and launched from the Kinburn Spit struck Ochakiv. 
Russian sources claim the port was targeted while Ukraine attempted an amphibious landing on the Kinburn Spit and several Ukrainian vessels were destroyed. As previously noted, we maintain intense skepticism that a significant landing occurred. In western and central Ukraine, Russian forces continued firing grad rockets on the Hromadas of Nikopol, Chervonohryorivka, and Markhanets in the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast. Over 60 rockets struck the communities, with Nikopol suffering the most damage. Power and natural gas infrastructure were damaged, and engineers were working to make repairs. Moving on to the Russian front, a Russian mill blogger claimed the border towns of Kosinka, Borki, Tietkino, Papova, Lizachi, and Zamask were shelled and attacked by drones. They did not report any injuries from the attack, but pictures showed a large fire in Kozinka after a diesel fuel depot was struck. Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. Belarusian officials reportedly ordered the creation of 50,000 documents to call up conscripts into military service. The mobilization will allegedly start before the end of November and is slated to be completed by December 31st. Ukrainian officials consider Belarus an occupied nation and self-declared President Alexander Lukashenko a puppet of the Kremlin. We've previously assessed that an invasion of western Ukraine targeting Rivne and Lviv is possible during the upcoming winter months. Dmitry Lubinets, the Ukrainian parliament's commissioner for human rights, appealed to Alexei Reznikov, the Minister of Defense of Ukraine, to restore the accreditation of Ukrainian and foreign journalists who covered the events in Kherson immediately after the liberation. Six journalists from CNN, Sky News, an Italian news agency, and Ukraine had their credentials revoked for reporting from Kherson less than 24 hours after liberation. Lubinets accurately pointed out that journalist access to combat zones is an accepted international norm, and the Ukrainian military should support the press. Ukrainian military leaders pushed back, saying the decision-making capacity for press access lies with the military, not civilian administration. Time for some assessment. Given the history of more than one journalist organization breaking operational security resulting in Ukrainian troops being killed and losing their positions back in June, we can understand the hesitancy of the Ukrainian armed forces. Russian forces also targeted journalists, resulting in almost two dozen deaths, which dropped dramatically after the unspoken 15 kilometers from fighting rule was implemented. In this case, however, the reporters did not put themselves in mortal danger and did not break operational security. They did take advantage of the ongoing chaos caused by the rapid Russian retreat, would have almost certainly been cleared to pass through multiple military checkpoints, or were embedded with advancing Ukrainian units. As conflict journalists, we understand the need to protect OPSEC and frequently call out the failures of Russian state media. However, the truth matters, and we agree with the Ukrainian Parliament's Commissioner for Human Rights that the accreditation should be restored in this particular case, due to the historical significance of the moment and no apparent harm caused. Journalists also have to walk a fine line between chasing a story and maintaining the pillars of ethical standards, including minimizing harm. 
A video from Ukrainian forces showed an infantry fighting vehicle intentionally striking the half-height dragon's teeth Russian troops had set up as barriers to slow or trap armored vehicles. The concrete pyramids, which aren't buried and are apparently hollow, did nothing to slow the IFV down. You should watch the video. We link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. Speaking of hollow, let's talk about Russian mobilization and the military. Russian President Vladimir Putin signed a decree that enables the Russian armed forces to conscript dual passport holders and foreign nationals living in Russia under a work permit. The change indicates the Russian Ministry of Defense is still having a hard time filling its ranks. And the forced conscription of foreign nationals into the Russian army will likely cause more tension among personnel. No word yet on if Steven Seagal is ready to go all Steven Seagal in Ukraine. Putin also signed a decree demobilizing university students in the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, and DNR. Family members have been pressuring the governments of the LNR and DNR, as well as the Kremlin, to return students and teachers that were forcibly conscripted over the summer. Despite the decree, reports of forced conscription of students of adult age continued in the illegally annexed regions. A Russian IL-76 transport was photographed in the Russian enclave of Kaliningrad, loading 150 convicts that had joined PMC Wagner with the promise of money, murder, and a pardon if they survive a six-month contract fighting in the Hunger Games. May I remind you that the life expectancy of a Wagner penal mercenary is nine days. May the odds be ever in your favor. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is minor graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. A single solitary day after praising the video showing the alleged execution by sledgehammer of Wagner's penal mercenary-turned-traitor Yevgeny Nuzhin, PMC Wagner leader Yevgeny Prigozhin now claims the video shows the CIA killing of one of its field assets. Prigozhin says the color of the stone used in the video, quote, isn't available in Russia, end quote, the flashes of uniform of two unseen people are American, and there is no cursing in the statement. He claims Nuzhin was imprisoned 27 years ago under the direction of the United States Central Intelligence Agency. Look, the execution was praised by Prigozhin, the ranks of PMC Wagner, and ultranationalists within Russia and their supporters. Russian ultranationalists want to return to Stalinism, and increasingly see Putin and the Kremlin leaders he has surrounded himself with as weak, ineffective, and corrupt. Honestly, it's unclear to us why Prigozhin has reversed course. We've elected not to share the video due to its graphic nature, but it is not hard to find on social media, using some obvious keywords. In geopolitical news, the United States awarded a $500 million contract to Lockheed Martin to replenish the ammunition supply for HIMARS and to provide continued support to Ukraine. 
The United States has provided 38 M142 HIMARS launchers to Ukraine since late June, and the Pentagon claims not a single launcher has been damaged or destroyed by Russian forces. Other nations have supplied M142, M270, and Mars-2 launchers, all of which use the same munitions. The United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution holding Russia accountable for multiple violations of international law and responsible for paying reparations to Ukraine. Ninety-four delegates voted in favor of the measure, 14 voted against it, and 72 abstained. Surprise yes votes included Afghanistan, Hungary, Mexico, Somalia, and Turkey. Israel abstained, and the Bahamas joined nations such as North Korea, Nicaragua, Belarus, and Russia in voting no. At the G20 summit in Bali, Ukrainian President Zelensky referred to the CONFAB as the G19 in a deliberate snub to the Russian Federation. While attending the summit virtually, Zelensky said, quote, There are and cannot be any excuses for nuclear blackmail. I thank you, dear G19, for making this clear. However, please use all your power to make Russia abandon nuclear threats. End quote. United States President Joe Biden, also at the G20 summit, said there would be no negotiations or peace deals made without Ukraine sitting at the table and dictating the terms of its future. Zelensky told the G20 delegates that there would be no Minsk III agreement, as its enforcement would be impossible and Russia would only use a ceasefire as an excuse to consolidate and restore combat power and attack again in the future. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an exchange rate of 60 for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices continued to slide, with WTI crude falling to $86 a barrel and Brent dropping to $93. United States wholesale RBOB gasoline on the spot market fell to $2.52 per gallon for November contracts, or $0.67 cents a liter. Dutch TTF gas futures for December 2022 remained highly volatile, skyrocketing to €127 per megawatt hour. January 2023 contracts were also up over 10%, trading at €132. Chicago SRW wheat futures climbed to $8.27 a bushel for March 2022 contracts. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.